1: Is it going to be a busy hurricane season is one of the most commonly asked questions to meteorologists, especially this time of year. After two back to back seasons with a supercharged Atlantic Basin, this year is indeed expected to be above average again. What does that mean for impacts? And how do those predictions make them? Eh, I got to fix this because I, I, I thought I could fix it on the fly. got so written, how those predictions are made are just some of the topics. Okay. All right. I see how she, okay, it's written. Sorry, Brian. Sorry, because I know he has to go in. All right. Okay. Last time here. Yeah, I actually see how it's written now. I was reading it. A, I see how she's trying to convey it. Jen Carfagno actually did the notes for this particular episode. So Okay, cool. He's more part of our Weather Geek staff. He's awesome. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Is it going to be a busy hurricane season is one of the most commonly asked questions to meteorologists, especially this time of year. After two back-to-back seasons with a supercharged Atlantic basin, this year is indeed expected to be above average again. What that means for impacts and how those predictions are made are just some of the topics to talk about with atmospheric scientists and premier hurricane season predictor, Dr. Phil Klotzbach on this episode of Weather Geeks. Phil, thank you for joining us again.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Marshall.
1: Yeah, I was just telling Phil before we started that he may be approaching Dr. Louis Uccellini as one of our most frequent Weather Geeks guests. And that's a good thing because when we have people back, they're experts and they're people we enjoy talking with. Let me just dive right in and give you some of Phil's background. Uh, He's a research scientist at Colorado State University. I uh, got his Ph.D. from Colorado State University in atmospheric sciences and a, a bachelor of sciences in geography from Bridgewater State University. And I believe and feel if you can correct me if you're wrong, you're still heading up or leading up the tropical weather uh, group there at Colorado State as well. Um, tell us about that group. But before you do, remind us of how you got interested in weather.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, uh, so the seasonal forecasts have been coming out of Colorado State University for 39 years, uh, all the way back in 1984, founded by uh, Dr. Bill Gray, and I'm guessing we'll talk a little more about him. I'll certainly talk about him throughout the podcast. Um, but kind of my background in weather is, you know, I kind of grew up and just obsessed with the weather since I was a little kid. Um, um, growing up, I grew up in Massachusetts, so we obviously were impacted by a lot of various weather types, and uh, kind of what really got me intrigued about hurricanes was Hurricane Gloria it made landfall in Connecticut, but it still brought fairly significant impacts to southeastern Massachusetts, and that was in 1985 when I was five years old, and five years, you're, you're, you're fairly impressionable, and then uh, Hurricane Bob came through in 1991 uh, when I was 11, and uh, unfortunately, we couldn't go to the Marshfield Fair because it got closed because of uh, the hurricane, so that wasn't so good, but I'm um, just always been really fascinated by weather. Weather. And um, as you mentioned, I got my undergraduate degree in geography. Um, but as part of the geography program, I did a, I did um, an undergraduate thesis on seasonal hurricane prediction. Um, and so I, you know, I, I learned about Dr. Gray in some of my undergraduate classes um, had, that he predicted hurricane seasons, and I thought that's crazy. You can't predict a hurricane season. You can barely predict, you know, where a hurricane's going to go, you know, in the next couple of days. And then I started reading his papers, looking at his methodology. And I was like, wow, the guy's not crazy. He's actually brilliant. And so. I applied to CSU and went out to grad school uh, to study under Dr. Gray in 2000. Um, and so I w- was worked with him uh, closely for 15 years, and he passed away in 2016. Um, and I can, uh, continue to head up the, head up the uh, seasonal hurricane predictions coming out of CSU. Um, so I've been a part of the seasonal forecast for over 20 years and lead author for over 15 at this point.
1: Yeah, and I, I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge Dr. Bill Gray. True, Bill Gray, truly one of the legends in the field of, of meteorology, um, pioneer. I mean, I think that word is appropriate. I think Bill was nodding in agreement. Um, remind us, Bill. I mean, I've, I've I think I've heard the story before, but in talking with Dr. Gray over the years, why did he start doing it? I mean, what, what was the motivation?
0: Yeah. And so the, so one of the big reasons why Dr. Gray, um, you know, kind of got into the whole business of seasonal forecasting and he had been doing fundamental research in tropical cyclone, Genesis, structure, intensity change. And so while he's best known for the seasonal forecasts. you know, I think if I had to pin, you know, kind of what I would say his, his premier accomplishment was a lot of it was more related probably to actually like Genesis and why tropical cyclones form wherever they do. I mean, those papers are still cited thousands of times and he, his students did all sorts of fundamental work on tropical cyclone structure, intensity change. And, you know, his papers again, his papers are just cited a ton but you know kind of how he got into the seasonal forecast business was dr gray was kind of a walking encyclopedia you could ask him about you know hurricanes baseball statistics he just he knew a tremendous amount so he was teaching tropical meteorology in the early 1980s and he noted that when he knew which years were El Nino years and he knew which years were active hurricane seasons. And he said, Hmm, when we have El Nino, we don't tend to have busy Atlantic hurricane seasons. And so that kind of got him thinking and said, okay, you know, maybe there's something there um, kind of in the large scale environment. And Dr. Gray was very much an empiricist where he basically would find these relationships in the data. And then he would basically put on his thinking cap and try to figure out, okay, here's kind of this relationship. Why physically would it be there? And so he published, um, a couple of papers in 1984, um, and he started also putting out seasonal forecasts that year, basically saying when we have El Nino, which is warmer than normal water in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean, it tends to increase winds at upper levels, say 20 30,000 feet in the atmosphere, that then tear apart hurricanes, especially in the Caribbean, but extending also into the tropical Atlantic. And so that's kind of his the first predictor that he discovered, and he had various other predictors as well um, in our with our seasonal forecasts. Um, the predictors that we use, we still obviously talk a lot about El Nino and there's a whole pile of other predictors that we use that relate to wind pressure patterns, moisture patterns in the Atlantic, because that's what obviously drives the Atlantic. And obviously another fundamental point is um, just what the water temperatures are like in the Atlantic. If they're warmer than normal, that provides more fuel for the developing hurricanes.
1: I know one thing that you mentioned is that you look at aspects of the ENSO cycle, El Nino and La Nina. As we think about 2022, I mean, I I saw you tweet something recently about sort of still being in La Nina, and I've seen some discussion out there about what's uh, called a triple dip La Nina. So first of all, is it rare to have a triple dip La Nina? And do you think we're going to have one? And what are the implications of that for the 2022 hurricane season?
0: Yeah. And so that would be the, so that means that effectively we have La Nina three years in a row and, and, it, and it's not, it's not, it's, it, it doesn't happen often, but it has happened. We had it from 1998 through 2000. And we also had, believe it was 73 to 75. I hope, I think it was right three years. Um, so it's happened a couple of times in the past. um, And basically, One of the reasons I think we've had, we've seen busy hurricane seasons in general since 2016, we've had six above normal seasons in a row, is due to the fact that we've generally had, not the entire time, we've generally had more La Nina like conditions. And we actually just published a paper um, looking at trends globally the last 30 years. And it looks like that La Nina trend has been taking place over a longer period as well, the last 30 years. Not to say we haven't had significant El Ninos, we certainly did in 1997 and a very significant El Nino also in 2015, but overall, more, more frequent La Niñas, less, and the El Niños that we've had in general have been weaker. For example, we had a brief one in 2018 into 2019, but it was fairly weak in 2018. Despite that, it was also just another very busy, busy hurricane season with uh, most notable impacts for the U.S. being Florence and Michael. um But getting to 2022, we currently are in La Niña. Um, there are likely some wind patterns coming up that are probably going to weaken that La Nina. So it's probably going to be kind of on that borderline between cool, neutral and weak La Nina. And it's only half a degree Celsius is the threshold for a La Nina or about one degree Fahrenheit, which seems in the mid latitudes, that's you know nothing. Whether it's 74 or 75 degrees, you're probably not going to notice. But in the tropics, the temperatures don't change very much. So one, two degrees Fahrenheit difference makes a big difference in then how the atmosphere responds. And that's obviously hurricanes that we forecasting are in the Atlantic. So the way, why we care about what's going on in the Pacific is because it's how it then alters the wind and pressure patterns that then change the wind patterns in the Atlantic.
1: And if you were sitting in a basic meteorology class and that uh, Phil or I were teaching, we'd be talking about those teleconnections and ways that this sort of, you know, temperature anomaly in the Eastern Pacific Ocean, or perhaps sometimes in the Central Pacific, impacts weather around the world. It's through these teleconnection tele- patterns related to these changes in pressure and wind and so forth. So it's really an interesting discussion. Um, there are, there are. Uh, I, I think you have come out with, and I wanna get to it before we get to our first break, you have come out with your initial projections for the season, what, what, what are you talking? And I think you maybe even debuted those, or I guess maybe in April?
0: Yeah, that's correct. We put out our first forecast, I believe, April 7th, about early April. Um, And at that point, we call for an above normal season with 19 named storms nine hurricanes, and four major hurricanes. And so named storms are basically any system named by the National Hurricane Center. So those are tropical cyclones with winds of 39 miles per hour or greater. Hurricanes have winds of 74 miles per hour or greater. And major hurricanes are 111 mile per hour winds or greater. Um, And an average season has about 14 storms, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. So somewhat above average. And so we'll actually be updating our forecast on June the 2nd. uh, we haven't obviously finalized our numbers yet, but I'd say at this point, at least we, we very, its going to be, I really don't think we're going to be going down. Um, if anything, we might be going up, up in numbers, just given what's changed over the last six to eight weeks. And obviously we can talk about that here. I'm sure in the next, in the next few minutes too, there's just been, there's been some changes in the atmosphere ocean that I think are loading the dice even more towards a potentially above normal Atlantic hurricane season.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Phil Klotzbach. And we're previewing the 2022 hurricane season. And Phil just teased teased us a little bit because in their initial projections, they've already talked about it above a normal season. And it sounds like since the early April uh, release, there are some things that have changed in the atmosphere and the ocean that maybe suggest at least a possible uptick. What are some of those things you're seeing?
0: Yeah, well, one of the things, obviously, in early April was there was a lot of uncertainty in whether what La Nina um, or whether we'd be shifting over to neutral conditions. And right now, it looks the odds of La Nina persisting have gone up somewhat since early April. Now, there are some likely changes in the low-level winds, so winds near the ocean surface in the next couple of weeks that will probably cause the La Nina to weaken at least temporarily. But overall, it does look like um, the odds favor either maybe a weak la niña or potentially cool neutral conditions which means a little bit cooler than normal but not up to that la niña threshold but even if we're say just cool neutral and not la niña overall the atlantic is looking somewhat more conducive than it did when we put out our outlook in early april um in early april the subtropical atlantic so not in the deep tropics where the hurricanes come but a little further north um, was fairly warm and typically what that does is it tends to create a fairly weak subtropical high pressure, and the circulation around that subtropical high on the southern extent, basically, if you have a weaker high, that basically means weaker trade winds, weaker low-level winds blowing across the tropical Atlantic, and those weaker winds cause less mixing and churning up of the ocean surface, which then leads to the tropical Atlantic warming up faster than normal. We have seen that, so in early April, it was a little bit colder than normal. Now it's a little bit warmer than normal. Um, The next couple weeks, it looks like we're going to have a little bit stronger trade winds for a few days and weaker trade winds. And so I think overall, um, the continued warmth we're also seeing in the subtropical Atlantic will likely lead to kind of a persistent, a weaker subtropical high, which will likely also just feed back into potentially continued warming of the tropical Atlantic at a faster than normal rate. And if we look at, um, there's a whole pile of different uh, climate models. So these are models that forecast kind of what the environment's going to look like uh, for the next several months. And there's, so there's the, the US government has a model, the climate forecast system model. Um, there's the ECMWF, which some of you may have heard of. That's the European Center for medium range weather forecasts. Uh, the UK Met Office has a model, the Japan, the Japan Meteorological Agency, then there's others as well. And so most of those models Um, They're not perfect, but they actually do have reasonable levels of skill at forecasting, basically not necessarily like individual. So these models are, you're looking more on monthly averages. You're not necessarily looking and saying, you know, what's the forecast for June 16th, but they can do a fairly good job of forecasting um, you know, one, two, three months out. Um, and so the models in general are calling for a warmer than normal tropical Atlantic and generally persistent, either cool neutral or La Nina and the associated wind patterns. Um, one of the big things that we look for every year and Dr. Grabe, you know, he was always talking about it too. And if you look at the hurricane center, they're always talking about his vertical wind shear and it looks overall like the shear is likely to be somewhat weaker than normal for the peak of the season. And if you have low shear and warm waters that tends to lead to busier hurricane seasons.
1: One question I've, I've you know, I, I've been seeing some information put out there in social media by uh, different people on even as early as next week uh, in the, well, when we're taping this, I don't know when this will air, likely probably around the first of the June, but I've been seeing rumblings of something in at least one of the models for late May. Um, but we, alf- we often caution, and I'm going to caution again about people putting out deterministic or specific information too far in advance. But are there any signals in your seasonal projections that kind of give a clue about whether we'll have early season activity or uh, is there any fidelity with that?
0: Yeah. And so there have been some model indications, especially from the global forecast system model from the US, um, been trying to spin something up in the Western Caribbean, potentially going up into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, as of today, the models kind of back off on that. And the um, so especially when it comes to tropical cyclone genesis, so storms forming models, so there's basically, as you mentioned, there's deterministic models, which are run at really, really high resolution, um, basically. So, so we have a very, they're very fine grid. So you're talking, you can run them on like 10, 20 kilometer grids. Um, but we also, for, for Genesis, I'd say it's better to look at some of the ensemble guidance, which will give you kind of, because if, if you run one ride of the model, it's either going to develop a storm or not. Whereas if you have an ensemble, so you can just kind of see a better idea of like what the odds are of that storm forming. Um, and so, you know, you can look at the GFS ensemble. There's the European center ensemble. So you can kind of get a better idea from those, but. Um, to their credit, the National Hurricane Center, they put out tropical weather outlooks. They start May 15th for both the Atlantic and the Eastern North Pacific, and they have not had anything in there. Um, Also, if you're interested, the uh, Climate Prediction Center every Monday puts out, or I'm sorry, we have a call every Monday, but they actually put out the outlook on Tuesday of Genesis for the next two weeks, and they put that out together in partnership with um, they're partners, both of the National Hurricane Center and the Joint Typhoon Warning Center. Um, and so they, they, they discuss that potential area, but they, they will put in um, shapes for either moderate or high confidence of development. And they'll look at the first, so they'll look at week one and week two. Um, And so for the Atlantic right now, there's no shapes for the next two weeks, Um, but certainly, you know, the hurricane season uh, officially starts June 1st. We had, we do occasionally get storms prior to the start of the hurricane season, even in late May. Um, But at least at this point, there's no, there's nothing, you know, imminently on the radar, although certainly, you know, I'm definitely watching that particular area, but at this point, it looks like it may actually drift into the Eastern North Pacific and potentially develop there in about a week to 10 days. But um, forecasting Genesis is, is a really hard problem and it's, Still, something we just had the American Meteorological Society's Hurricanes and Tropical Meteorology Conference, and you know I was really blown away because we haven't had that conference in person in four years, and just seeing some of the, the the developments that have been done. But Genesis is still is still a really hard problem.
1: Yeah, it was really neat. I didn't get a chance to make it to that conference. I actually uh, in a previous iteration, prior pre COVID, we actually were going to come down and present some findings from some of our work. Um, but was not able to make it. Uh, Jen Carfagna, who's uh, one of our Weather Geeks team and awesome on-camera meteorologist the Weather Channel, wanted me to ask you about analogs. Uh, how important are analog seasons to what you do?
0: Yeah, so we do a variety of different techniques to come up with our forecast. So the first technique that we use is basically a statistical model, and that's, Pretty much very similar to what Dr. Gray would have used in the early 1980s, whereby we basically say, okay, which regions in the atmosphere and ocean? So say, okay, the June forecast is coming up. Um, So which regions in the atmosphere and ocean in April and May worked well at forecasting historical hurricane seasons? Um, And so we find certain regions, uh, both in the Atlantic and in the Pacific, related to the Atlantic overall circulation patterns, as well as what's going on with El Nino. Um, another, another technique that we use now that Dr. Gray couldn't have done in the early 1980s because climate models basically were non-existent is we use climate model forecasts of the environment in the future. Um, and so we'll say, okay, we actually forecast the environment for the month of July. And the reason that we do that is because July is closer than August to October. So the models generally have better scope for July than August to October. And also... Um, the correlations in July with hurricane activity are about as high as they are. They actually can even be a little bit higher than they are during the peak of the season. I think some of that may be due to the fact once you get into, say, especially August, September, and October, sometimes the storms themselves will start imprinting their signal on the the environment, and that can kind of make things look either, quote-unquote, better or worse um, than it actually is. Um, And so what we do is we, these models that we use, are built, they're developed on historical data because obviously the developers want to know, you know, how good is this model? And so they had, they range from 25 to 40 years of effectively hindcast. So basically had this model been available in say 1993, how well would it have forecast the water temperatures, the pressures and everything. So we can kind of see, you know, how good or bad these models are. And so basically what we do is we have the models forecast what July is going to look like. And then basically assuming that that forecast is correct, how much overall storm activity should we expect? And so we use three different ones. We use the European center, the ECMWF model, the UK Met Office model, and then the uh, the, Jap- the Japan Meteorological Agency model. What oh, they- I'm sorry, I never answered your question. The analogs, um, sorry, I just kind of wanted to break down the uh, forecast. Games, no, analogs, I
1: appreciated that context, actually. Yeah,
0: sorry. Um, and then we also use analogs. And analogs are basically years in the past that had conditions most similar to what we currently see and what we expect to see for the peak of the season. And so, um, you know, there are analogs that I think work that look the most similar. But if you were to ask other, you know, hurricane people, there's some hurricane scientists, some would, I'm sure, have other years. So it's not like it's an exact science. And if I discuss my analogs with someone, say, you know, at the National Hurricane Center or colleagues at universities, I would say usually if I usually pick five, maybe three, we kind of agree on. And there's a couple where it's, um, you know, there's disagreement. And you know the idea with analogs is that you know like like snowflakes, no snow hurricane seasons are exactly alike. And obviously too, we're kind of anticipating what we think the season will, how it will look. And obviously we don't know exactly. So our analogs that we say have in April may change in June, just given, okay, now we're a little more confident potentially that we'll have La Nina. The Atlantic's a little warmer. So our, our analogs may actually change somewhat. And the one thing I do want to point out with our analogs is that While they are, they're basically used for overall seasonal hurricane activity. So just because, for example, one of our analogs is 2008, not saying we're expecting them to their hurricane Ike in 2022, just overall, the environment looks fairly similar.
1: Which, you know, one of the things I'm hearing quite a bit about in the meteorological community the, these days is machine learning and AI, artificial intelligence. Do you apply any of those techniques? In, because obviously you just mentioned that you're using really a mixed methods approach to the, your seasonal prediction. Uh, have you started to go into that or perhaps maybe you already were?
0: Yeah. Um, so we do a ton with um, machine learning and part of the challenge is that um, with say, you know, individual hurricanes or like predicting weather, you have a lot of realizations. And so machine learning does great when you have, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of data points, whereas hurricane seasons, you know, we don't have so many. So if you go back into the past, there's not necessarily a ton more you're going to be able to get out of machine learning approaches. Um, than you can get from just simply doing like compositing or various other more simple techniques. Not to say that people aren't. There's other groups that are doing machine learning. I've played around with it a little bit. Um, I'm not um, just using some work that some colleagues have done. We've kind of played around with it for the Atlantic and you know, most of the time, the first predictor or two are very similar to what, you know, Dr. Gray was using in the 80s, which is good. Um, but they're, the tricky thing, I think, with machine learning, too, is sometimes it can be kind of overconfident. Um, and they'll tell you that we should use these all these areas. Um, and that's actually, so long before there was really machine learning in the early 1990s, we, our group was using a lot of predictors. If you go back to look at how many predictors we we're using, it was like 12, 14 predictors. And basically, we're overfitting the data. Um, and not to say that there aren't ways of reducing that overfitting and trying to kind of get rid of that overconfidence from the machine learning. But I think it really is a challenge is given the limited number of data points that we have. Um, it works great. You know, if you're Google and you have you know billions of searches a day, you can run all sorts of great analyses on that with machines and data. machine learning loves, loves tons and tons of data. Uh, but when you only have 30, 40, 50 data points, it gets, it gets kind of marginal. And kind of that's one of the battles we always fight with our seasonal predictions is do we develop our models on, say, the satellite when we have really these pretty good satellites since the late 70s, but that's only 40, 45 years? Or do we go back further where the observations of hurricanes are less certain, the observations of the climate are less certain, and see how it works on those? Um, and those kind of a battles that you're always fighting. And sometimes relationships that work great now didn't always work great. And so the question then is, is it that the relationship didn't work? Because sometimes the climate functions as a single unit, so as as climate changes both due to natural variability and you know human causes things may shift relationships that work great may suddenly fall apart or the relationship always aren't just the data was lousy and so it's, it's hard to really know and that's kind of one of the battles that we do we're always fighting with these uh with these seasonal forecasts and that kind of goes more into like a philosophical question
1: whoa sweet man Dave. thanks serious upgrade how'd you pay for all this
0: i got a home equity line of credit from figure
1: So we're back with Dr. Phil Klotzbach. I'm Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia. In the last segment here, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, how do you, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, I think you're really, your group is seen as, I mean, other groups issue these seasonal predictions, but I think your group is seen as sort of the originator and sort of, I think, go-to on these. How do you, for the public, someone that's listening to the Weather Geeks podcast right now, How do you recommend they use the information that you're putting out?
0: yeah um so you know as, as you mentioned there are a bunch of groups doing seasonal forecasts um csu is the first uh, but there are we actually have a website um seasonal which is a website that um our group combined with the bar the barcelona supercomputing center is the one who really kind of spearheaded it and, and then our group also contributed to it um developed this website where we have all the different groups that do seasonal forecasts displayed and there's about I think 26, 27 groups now on the website. So if you go there, you'll see, not all the groups have done their first forecast yet, but you can kind of see the spread of the forecast. And there are different methodologies. Um, There are machine learning groups, there are groups that just use climate models, there's groups that use just statistics, and there's a lot of groups kind of like ours that do a whole hodgepodge of different approaches. Um, so that, and you can get information on the seasonal forecast from there. Uh, But when it comes to the general public, you know, there's a lot of curiosity. People want to know, you know, how busy do you think the upcoming hurricane season is going to be? Um, And we can say with some level of skill, you know, how busy the season is going to be, but we can't say when or where storms are going to make landfall Um, in general, busier seasons. So more active seasons have more landfalling hurricanes. So you can just think 2020, 2021, busy seasons, lots of landfalls. Alternatively, You can also get a nasty hurricane in an otherwise quiet year and the prime example I always give for that is 1992 CSU had been doing seasonal forecasts for a while at that point Dr. Gray and his team put out a great forecast that year of only one major hurricane but it did happen to be Hurricane Andrew which slammed into South Florida um, and obviously caused quite a bit of damage Andrew didn't form till late August so the first storm of the year didn't come till late August and it was a category five um, that caused a lot of damage but in general busier seasons do have more landfalling hurricanes so if say you look at we've been doing this for almost 40 years if you look at the 10 years where we forecast the most hurricanes and the 10 years where we forecast the fewest hurricanes, the ratio of landfalls, I believe, is about three to one. Um, so you do get more landfalls. But we always emphasize with the general public, you know, regardless of the seasonal outlooks, first of all, they're not perfect. We have had some busts in the past, but even if it is a perfect forecast, you know, it only takes out one hurricane near you to make it a busy season. And so we advise everyone to um, to be prepared the same for every hurricane season and the storms do threaten to focus or to follow the advice of your local emergency management.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I imagine that there are some businesses and insurance industries and so forth that are interested in what you do. Do they they, they 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 support you in any way or at least come to you?
0: Yeah. So I mean I I've interacted a lot. Um there's a lot of the interest in insurance. And so like your primary insurance. Um, you know, obviously, the rates are not the rates do change year to year, but the rates aren't based on seasonal forecast. You know, it's not like, oh, no, I put out that forecast. We're going to up your rates and then CSU, CSU's forecast is lower. So we're going to lower your rates. I mean, those, the rates are often are set, you know, prior to the prior to the hurricane season and the seasonal outlook. Those are often based on um, risk catastrophe models, uh, which are based a lot more on, on long-term records and even say like medium term predictions, but say the next 10 years, not the next one year. Uh, but there is a lot of curiosity there um, amongst insurance. Um, and it's not to say necessarily that they, um, you know, are they're not adjusting their rates based on this, but they're just, it, it's good information for them to have just to, so they can kind of be prepared for, uh, for what might be coming down the pike. But, you know, being, being an undergraduate in geography, you know, obviously the emphasis is always on, on location, location, location. And so, you know, if you have a nasty hurricane make landfall and it makes landfall in an area that's sparsely populated it's obviously not going to do as much damage as that same hurricane in a densely populated area and you know we can see that with Hurricane Ida last year obviously Hurricane Ida was the most damaging hurricane of the year total price tag about 75 billion about 60 billion in Louisiana however had Ida gone you know 20 miles farther to the east the core of its winds gone directly over the New Orleans metropolitan area. Um, I saw actually the AMS Tropical Meteorology Conference was in New Orleans last week. And I saw there's still quite a few blue tarps on the west side of town. But had that had the core of those strongest winds gone directly over the whole metropolitan area, obviously the price tag from that would have been a lot worse. And that's obviously something we can't say, you know, months in advance. And obviously, even just even with the great forecast that we have now, we can't even say, you know, if storms track within, you know, 50 miles is about was good that we can get at, say, like a one day lead time.
1: In in your methodologies, are you accounting for the possibility or changes that we're seeing related to broader climate changes? Have you had to adjust anything about what you're doing?
0: Yeah. So I'd say one thing that we do now that we that um, is that if you look at the kind of the ratio between hurricanes to named storms, now we forecast, so we're forecasting this year, nine hurricanes and 19 named storms. Have we put out that same forecast 20 years ago? If we, for nine hurricanes, we'd probably been going for 16 or 17 named storms. And that's because we are naming more weak, short-lived storms now than we used to. And it's not that they aren't storms, they are, but just we have better technology, better satellites, better other um, observational platforms to be able to name these storms. So there, that's one thing we are doing. Um, in terms of climate change, um, obviously we could do an entire podcast. We could do many, several podcasts on that topic. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to climate change, so basically our predictors, some of the predictors that we weigh, um, are sea surface temperatures. So when the sea surface temperatures are warmer, um, that obviously if, but so we look at say sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic, but also sea surface temperatures in the Pacific. So with climate change, theoretically, the tropics should all be warming. So from a gradient perspective or a difference in temperature, um, that necessarily isn't necessarily going to change all that much and so overall You know, hurricanes do respond to the local water temperatures, but it's a lot more of it is how the warm the Atlantic is, say, relative to the rest of the tropics. And so that is why La Nina is so important, because when you have La Nina, the rest of the tropics tends to be cooler. The Atlantic often, well, the Atlantic is, even if the Atlantic isn't warmer, but if the Atlantic stays the same and the rest of the tropics is cooler, that tends to favor stronger thunderstorm activity over the Atlantic. And those thunderstorms kind of enhance basically when those systems come off Africa into a more conducive environment.
1: Yeah, this is amazing. I always enjoy talking to Bill just to set the stage for the upcoming year. kind of coming to a close with a couple of questions. Um, do you keep any traditions that Dr. Gray established alive?
0: Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I, first of all, I, I quote him constantly. My wife knows all his quotes at this point. Um, but a couple of big traditions that we do is so every every seasonal forecast that CSU puts out. um, So back in the day, back before the internet, um, Dr. Gray used to basically mail hundreds of these forecasts, print out hundreds of these forecasts and mail them to scientists, emergency managers, all these people around the country. And so, when you had several hundred of those, it was a fairly extensive undertaking. And so pretty much everybody in his research project got involved and he always brought in huge numbers of donuts. He was a huge fan of donuts. So that donut tradition continues always get a donut on a forecast day. Nice. Um, and a lot of also a lot of other of Dr. Gray's former project members that have since gone on also, you know, we'll continue that tradition uh, of, of consumption of donuts. Um, another tradition that we keep alive is so August 20th, Dr. Gray used to ring a bell to signal the active part of the Atlantic hurricane season. So the Atlantic hurricane season officially starts June 1st, ends November 30th, but it's extremely peaked. On average, you've only had one hurricane in the Atlantic by the middle of August. So August 15th, August twenty is about when the season really, really ramps up. And so he used to actually bring a bell every year signaling the active part of the Atlantic hurricane season. And so we did, we do keep that tradition alive as well. And so outside where his office was, we actually have a glassed enclosure at CSU with um, the bell and a few other uh, pieces of memorabilia from uh, Dr. Grave. It certainly will keep his legacy going. Um, as, certainly as long as I'm alive and for generations to come, just his 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 imprint on the field is enormous, I think. Oh, it is, the, no, absolutely. Some, absolutely. Yeah, if, if not the most um, for, say, any scientist since 1950, I'd say he's certainly in the uh, in the top 10 with others like Joanne and Bob Simpson and Herb Riel and a few others.
1: Absolutely. No doubt about it. Last question. Uh, and you've got mountains in your backdrop as I'm looking at you as I talk. Uh, You're an avid runner, hiker, cyclist. Uh, Are you more of a mountain guy or a tropical guy or (laughs)
0: both? Well, I I think you get good thoughts done on the tropics when you're in the mountains. Um, But no, I I love I love the mountains. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts, which didn't have a dance some rolling hills, but not any kind of mountains. But I've been on. I, yeah, I just love being in Colorado. Um, this is actually from where I used to live in California. This is not Colorado, but I, actually being good Colorado uh, Thursday's high looks to be pushing 90. And then Friday, we have a chance of getting several inches of snow, So <laughs> oh, wow. it's, uh, it's, but no, no complaints. We really, really, really need the moisture. So, um, you know, we'll take it in rain, snow, however form it
1: wants to fall. But, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a on. great point because there is significant drought in the Western part of the country right now. Actually, even here in, in the South and in the Jordan, in Georgia, where I am, we're trending towards some drought conditions as well. Although I see possible rain on the horizon for the weekend. Well, this is where we have to end. It's been a great podcast before I get out of here, though. We always do our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Dr. Daryl Kingfield. He's the Hazard Services Program Manager at NOAA. Daryl's most memorable weather event was the May 10 2011 tornado that hit East Norman, Oklahoma. He was actually at Vortex 2 at the time. Uh, He remembers it ripping the roof off of his condo and scaring his roommate's dog. Dr. Kingfield was nominated because beyond his love for storm chasing and scientific field work back when he had time to do both, he heads the program that uh, National Weather Service forecasters use to issue the nation's watches, warnings and advisories. And he's helping to streamline the process and discover new ways to warn and communicate. Now, if someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next geek of the week, check out our social media pages. And speaking of that, Phil, where can people find you on social media?
0: Yeah, so um, on social media, I'm on Twitter. And I'm at Phil Klotzbach. Um, I signed up for Twitter long before I thought I'd be doing much on there. So it's not the easiest one, but um, just it's at then Phil, my first name, and then my last name, Klotzbach. Uh, I, um, I post a ton of weather stuff, and then I post, uh, you'll see some outdoor pictures as well. Uh, Especially as we get towards uh, the the really pretty season in the mountains.
1: (laughs) He's definitely on lockdown on my list this time of year for following. And I highly recommend you do the same. Thank you so much for joining on this episode of Weather Geeks. Thank you so much. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And we'll see you next time.